Hey, how you doing? My name is Luke Such. I'm Scott Minema. And this is the Headwaters Church Podcast. Today we are uh, just talking about our favorite books, quite quite literally. Or is there anything else on the docket for today? I don't think so. Okay, we're talking favorite books. <laughs> That's what we're uh, trying to tackle here. Uh, we frequently get asked, what are uh, what's a good book on fill in the blank or whatever it may be? And so we figured uh, we'll just sit down and go through a list of some of our favorite books. Are we doing this by category? Or are we just kind of talking through? I, we, I, we kind of talked beforehand, and now I'm realizing, now that we're recording, we didn't come to a conclusion. Yeah, so I'll let you decide on that. Oh, just, great, great. I'll, I'll follow your lead. Um, all right, then then it's going to be far more free-flowing. I don't have any, because because the books that I grabbed don't have neat categories. Um. So we're going to be all over the place. We can categorize them if you want. <laughs> Fair. Um, all right. We first we're going to start off with the ground rules. the 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 Bible isn't assumed. All right. So, uh, oh, yeah, that was the first. That one was my list. Was Scott's only book. He didn't have anything else. So we're taking that off. Uh, go read your Bible. Spend more time in your Bible than anything else we suggest. And uh, from then on out, you, I, I think it's Spurgeon who says, I've, I've visited many great books, but I live in my Bible. That, that, that should be your disposition on this question. That being said, uh, there are many great books, some of them uh, worth your time to read. Not all of them, by the way. There are lots of books that are not worth your time to read. We but, could we could have a separate oh, podcast Oh, now we're those. talking. That, that actually sounds quite fun. The books you get assigned or that people say are worth reading, but just actually aren't. All right, I, th- that <laughs> <laughs> you piqued my interest. Um, all right, well, I'll I'll start then uh, with a, a a fairly I don't know non controversial non uh, a, a book that's probably off of anybody's list of favorite books, and it's because it's one that you really need to read. It's called How to Read a Book. Quite literally, it's by uh, Mortimer Adler and Charles Van Doren. I, I had the experience, so really all of mine are going to come with like personal stories at some level, but the experience of uh, not knowing how to read a book until I was probably a junior in college, and I don't mean I didn't know how to read the words, nobody had taught me how to be tactful and purposeful and to read different genres differently and to think about how you go about that, and I had a professor who changed my world Uh because he taught me how to read, essentially. And this book uh, by Adler and Van Doren, How to Read a Book, it will do that. It, 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 the subtitle is The Classic Guide to Intelligent Reading. It's a little technical. Um, that being said, it's, very, it, it's not inaccessible by any stretch. And it contains in the back, the first appendix has a great uh, recommended reading list of kind of classics of everything. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, it's philosophy, it's literature, it's spirituality, it's all across the board. I'm wondering if, as people are listening, if they can hear you pick the book up and put it down on the table as you're talking about <laughs> How many it. times can I do this? Yes, yes. See, I Luke, brought, yeah. Luke, I re- Luke actually brought books. <laughs> I, I, I just brought a list because I, well, I'm tired of carrying books, so um, yeah, I don't read a, on a Kindle. I don't. I can't do screens. I prefer, you know, very analog versions. Like I said, you got to carry all these books back yeah, to your well, office. That happens. Oh, all right. So, so I don't. What category would that go in? I don't even know. Self help. That's basically <laughs> a self help book on reading. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, anyhow. I don't have a book in the self-help category. I didn't. That's going to have to be the only one we talk about. Uh, fair enough. And I'm, I'm okay with that being the only <laughs> self-help book we recommend. Well, you know, I, I would start, if I was going to pick a book, probably, I mean, I think every book of ours that we're going to talk about has a story behind it, because these have, all, these have shaped us, right, in yeah. some way. That's why they're on our list. And so... I'd probably start with one of the more recent ones uh, that my wife and I read together, and that was uh, Providence by John Piper. Uh, it is it is a remarkable work. Uh, it, it was just published, I believe, last year, so it's a fairly new book, but and it's a big one. There's, I think, 45 or 46 chapters, but he, he uh, the name of the book is Providence. He defines Providence uh, very simply as God's purposeful sovereignty. And really what he does is a biblical theology of God's purposeful sovereignty throughout the scriptures. But um, everything from, you know, God's um, providence in man's decision, mm-hmm. God's providence in in government. And I mean, it, it is exhaustive in many ways, uh, but it is so—it's it, like anything Piper writes. It's very, very— rich with scripture. In fact, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I believe there's over 3,000 different references to scripture. But but I'll kind of land it here. You, you can't read that book. You can't read a chapter of that book without walking away with just a, a heart that is pointed towards God, his glory, his beauty, uh, his, the wonder of his love and of his of his sovereignty and, and his faithfulness over time and space and so it's it just it just draws you like most of the things I think this author writes just draws you uh, closer to the Lord strengthens your faith hmm. so I'd put that if we had to put that in a category I'd probably just put that in a category of well theology theology yeah 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 it's it's good. Um, I, Piper's story on that is that he took a Bible. Have you heard this? He, he asked his staff, like, get him a, a oh, yeah, fresh yeah. Bible, and he yeah. went through and he underlined or like had a blue highlighter for every passage that emphasized the sovereignty of God. He took a yellow highlighter for every passage that emphasized like human free will. It was like it's a very blue looking Bible mm-hmm. by the end, of it, which is you know very very John Piper thing to say. So while we're on the subject of, yes. well, theology, but maybe more specifically sovereignty. Do you have anything on that list? Well, I I have a Piper book, um, but maybe I'll get to that one in a little bit, because it's more Christian living than mm. uh, theology. I, I have a, a theology book that's not particularly on sovereignty. Um, it's more on the doctrine of the Trinity, but it kind of sneaks into that. So uh, the book, The One, The Three, and The Many, is by Colin Gunton, and it's it's actually a book version of a series of lectures. If if you've never heard of the Bampton Lectures, uh, they they happen not every year anymore, but they used to at, at Oxford. And uh, since like I don't know, like 1790 or so, it's like it's an endowed lecture, which I you know that's a peculiar thing in and of itself, but uh, it. it it generally takes up a particular issue in theology. 
And sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're just, nah, whatever. Um, and this one from 1992 uh, is from a guy named Colin Gunton. And it's, it's really, a, it's a historical survey of Western thought and where we've gone and what has happened and the loss. Uh, and and, and it, I don't know the dates on some of these other books so off the top of my head. I don't know if Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue came before or after that, but somewhat similar to that or uh, Thomas Fowles' Minding the Modern, similar kind of books, this big, broad, like whole scope of Western thought, and they all kind of point to different things as the remedy. So Fowles is going to point, uh, McIntyre quite pointedly in, I'm sorry, as I, I'm talking through this, I'm like, this is very egghead theology or philosophy for, for the two people who enjoy this type of thing, who like Alistair McIntyre. One, one and a half. One, okay, one and a half. Just Might not be, even be two. No, fair enough. <laughs> um, the... Uh, uh, what was I say? Oh, yeah, yeah. Fowl points to like the loss of agency and McIntyre, the loss of virtue. Gutton's going to gonna pull everything back to the, the, re- the redeeming turn for Western thought is going to be Trinitarian. If you're going to pull us out of the muck and mire that the postmodern world has left us in, you're going to have mm-hmm. to find something more of, of substance, some, something to turn to, and he's going to turn to the Trinity. It is a... Uh, it, not for the faint of heart, um, so I wouldn't suggest it if you are uninitiated with reading theology. It's not going to be super easy, but it is very interesting. When he when he talks about West, when you talk about Western thought, where does he uh, where does he really pick up? That's a good question because uh, it's been a long time since this was a grad school read for me. So uh, I mean, we're starting with Heraclitus, so uh, pretty darn early. We've got Greek thought. The problem of the one and the many in the modern life, and and I mean, it's going to spend a lot more in modernity than it is antiquity, but man, it it's a big, big bad attempt to understand how we got to where we are. Mm. Plato, Aristotle, stuff like that. You know, you're going to go through a bunch of scholastic and medieval thought, and then Reformation and modern thought, and where things maybe have gone and where we need to correct and what we need to do. So cool. It's an interesting book. If, if you like that sort of thing for that half a person, for the one and a half, <laughs> no, the one, ha- I'm the one, the other is just the half that's left. <laughs> well, well, hold on while I'm on uh, difficult reads. And I've mentioned this one before, uh, Kevin Van Hoosers, is there a meaning in this text? And, and this is more of a, ah, uh, it's not really theology. It's more a uh, it's a defense of meaning at a deeper level. And again, it's a response to postmodernism. He takes the postmodern critique seriously, which most people don't. And and it's easy you know, it's easy to say why people don't take the postmodern critique seriously because you're like, okay. You, everything's meaningless. There's no actual truth. There's no postmodern architects, you know, like there's not, it's, not, it's just not going to work. And, and while that's true, it's minimally helpful to actually address the problem of subjectivity, which postmodernism brings to the surface. Again, he's going to turn to the Trinity and there, I mean, there's a couple sections in this book that are just astoundingly helpful if you've ever tried to wrestle with this sort of thing. So he's going to turn to uh, again, very Trinitarian, but he's going to make a case for not absolute knowledge, but adequate knowledge. 
and he's going to use this essentially based on the character of God. We, we can't absolutely know God, but we know him in a meaningful enough way that we can make clear and accurate positive statements. Not complete, but purposeful and good. And again, it's, you know, uh, it's a, uh, you know, 500-page <clears throat> book and... Small. Small letters, small print, no pictures, no, no <laughs> pictures involved, and it, it, it's uh, it's not easy to read, but it's it's very important in many ways and, and really helpful. So I like I liked that book for as much of a book of that type of nature as you can like. I really liked it. Well, most of I I think I see a trend here starting with uh, with books. Um, none of mine are going to be like you know. Mine are close to all having pictures, I think. I'm all not, the I'm rest gonna... of my, those are the, I've done all the hardest ones that I have. Everything else is far more accessible. I think, you know, when I look at, um, maybe we call, we keep it under the category of theology. I would, I would put these books, maybe these two into the category of uh, the discipline of, of biblical theology. But first, um, so let me get to the books. Now, number one is According to Plan uh, by a guy named Graham Goldsworthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love this book because it was it it was so helpful for me in understanding the overall storyline of Scripture. And you know, I grew up in the church and it certainly didn't understand the Bible, but the Bible never really made sense. It seemed like there's just all these disconnected parts to the Bible, and you know. People have different names for that disconnectedness, but the point was uh, it just seemed one-dimensional. And as I began to read and understand that discipline of biblical theology and understand that what he did for me was bring out that redemptive storyline in Scripture. It's kind of like what you were were talking about on Sunday. We're recording this on April April 20th. So this past Sunday, you know, you were just talking about, even in the Old Testament, how all of these major themes— um, all of them point to our shadows of and point to the ultimate fulfillment is Christ. And yeah. I I never saw that. Mm-hmm. I never understood that. And one of the things that Goldworthy's book helped me to see was the grandness of the of the scriptures. And so they went from being, you know, one dimensional to three dimensional. And yeah. uh, it was I just I reading that book and the next one I'm gonna mention was kind of a well a Luke 24 experience for me. <laughs> He's got a great book on preaching uh, preaching the whole Bible as Christian scripture that does mm-hmm. the same thing just in with with preaching in view how to how to exposit the scriptures with that type of big picture redemptive themes in, yeah. in mind. Yeah. What was your next one? Um called uh, the God of Promise and the Life of Faith. It was I written, don't know that book. Written by a guy named Scott Hafman. And and again it's the discipline of biblical theology. Haifman, I'm not sure where he's at now. He was at, at Wheaton um, for a number of years. I think Gordon Cromwell, Cromwell may be where he's at now. But anyway, again, it's the he works through you know major covenants, but but again, he's he's working this discipline of biblical theology and just showing the grandness of the scriptures and how everything points to and finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so these big ideas that we pick up in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, yeah. king, people of God, all of these things are shadows of the one who is 
the true prophet, yep. but not just the prophet, the message of the prophet, not just the king, but the servant, not just the priest, but the sacrifice. You know, Christ is all of those. And uh, anyway, great. Both of those are good books. And not, um, I would say they're, they're, they're certainly not textbooks and, uh, or seminary level, but they're, they're really written at more of a popular level, but, but, but very, very good. All right, what's our next category? So that's that's more theology. You did some biblical theology. Although, I, the, is there a meaning in this text is, is more philosophy? And, and even like one, the three, and the minis, kind of historical survey mixed in with theology. So I don't know that I, I pit, played well with our categories here. Do you have, what's our next category? How about, how about we move to, again, everything just kind of connected to theology in one way or another. How about practical theology? How yep. how theology works its way out? We could call it Christian living, yes, right? But I would just call it practical theology. What does it look like? What are these big, grand truths of Scripture and the reality of God and living with the Lord of God? What do they look like on Monday morning and Wednesday afternoon? Typically, I'm not a huge fan of this category, not because it isn't useful, but because I find it's just, it doesn't improve upon what, if I would just read my Bible, it just doesn't do much for me more. That being said, there are instances where I think they break, those types of books break through and they're, and God can use all kinds of different things. So don't listen to my um, personal preferences on this sort of thing. If you find that you are growing because of those types of books, keep reading them. Go engage. Um, but I have a couple that have been very purposeful in my own life, um, really been used by God. I, my uh, copy here, this was my John Piper book, is uh, A Hunger for God, which is his book on fasting. And uh, mine is literally falling apart while I'm looking at it here. I... I uh, had always found a way to, as I grew in my faith, I always thought that f- fasting was for other people, one. <laughs> and uh, the defense I gave of that, even though I knew the text, I knew that Jesus, you know, he when you fast, like there's an assumption in Jesus's mm-hmm. discussion with the, the disciples that fasting is going to be a part of your life. I always thought, I... I'm not very kind when I'm hungry, right? I need to get the classic hangry. I, I don't treat people the way I want to, so I shouldn't fast because I'm not able to be kind. And I had somebody, a friend of mine say, maybe you need to learn how to be irritated and not take that out on other people. And I thought, oh, dang it, you're right. I do need to learn how to do that. And uh, and so I don't know how long ago, but I, I took to a pretty regular regiment of trying to fast. And every time I did, I would read the introduction to Piper's book on fasting. And really, uh, I mean, the whole book is good. The introduction is worth the rest of it, which is probably the truth with most books. Let's call that what it is. Um, But the the underlying like desire and call and fasting that he lays out in that was so captivating to me. And it's been something that I've shared with a bunch of... I've invited all kinds of different groups of people into fasting together for particular purposes or just for our own spiritual well-being. And my wife and I have done this. I've done this with people that I've been discipling. I've done it with uh, you know, family and friends for somebody who's about to get married. And, and it's become a really, really sweet part of uh, the means of grace that God's used in my life. And Piper's book has, has pushed a little bit of uh, clarity and 
desire for that. And then one other in this category, which is really methodological, um, and it's really small. Piper's book is immensely readable. Um, this one's even more so. It's I've suggested it in pretty much every forum that I have in many different ways. So Praying the Bible by Don Whitney, mm-hmm. under 100 pages. It's just a, a very simple way to have a, a vibrant prayer life. It doesn't take much, and he kind of take, takes on the, the, the struggle that most people have when they go to pray, that it kind of ends up being the same kind of jargon, the same kind of empty, you, you just kind of pray the way that you've heard others pray, and there's not generally much heart to How do I sustain prayer? And he's going to suggest that you should have your prayer life be running along the same tracks as your Bible reading and allowing the the Word of God to guide your thoughts in prayer. I've, I've found it immensely helpful in personal practice, um, but also just to shape and guide thoughts on prayer. Yeah, you know, anything Don Whitney writes is just solid, and it's especially as it relates to spiritual disciplines. That's uh, that's his wheelhouse for sure. All right, sure. so Christian living, th- uh, practical theology, what's in your category? Yeah, this is kind of my, I mean, this is... This is your... Yeah, we're, we're maybe you, you're less... Um, yes, <laughs> this is kind of the. This is my ecosystem. This is where I live, right? And this is go for it, Scott. And uh, and these have all been, you know, these have all been shaping in, in one way or the other. So no no particular order of importance. But uh, a number of years ago, Ken Sandy wrote a book called The Peacemaker, and uh, what I love about this book is, for me, I always when I thought about the gospel. I always thought about the gospel in terms of evangelism. Hmm. In other words, you know, the gospel is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and you, you, that it's critical when we're evangelizing, when we're telling somebody about Christ, we need the gospel. But then, for me, the gospel was something you put back on the shelf until you're ready to... Evangelize again? Right. Yeah. And the idea huh. never occurred to me that the gospel is also how we live. It's not just salvation, it's sanctification. It's how I live my relationship in my marriage and with my children and with people I work with and those that I come in contact with. And this book did that for me. He does such a wonderful job of under, taking the gospel and putting it in, just putting, what does it look like in relationships? And even more precisely, what does the gospel look like in solving problems, in dealing with conflict? And um, and so it's it's really, really good from a you know big picture, but but wonderfully practical. And if you're I shouldn't say if, when you start struggling with conflict in your life, what are what can we learn from Jesus' words that just practically help us walk through whether it be the you know confession of sin or uh, forgiveness or you know what both of those are point to reconciliation. What are practical steps there? You know, how do you do that? That book does that. It's a great great read for just living the gospel in everyday life. Another one that I that I liked is, uh, and we use this a lot in in our uh, counseling training is Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands yeah. by Paul Tripp. I mean it's. It's been out probably, goodness, 20 years now, but um, just a really good overview of what is, how does this process of sanctification look in the life of a believer? How do people change? Um, what are those means of grace that God uses? And uh, it is a, uh, it's just a, a wonderful 
guide to a, the personal ministry of the word in the lives of one another. And so yeah. as we as we come alongside each other, how do we use the scriptures to help one another with the questions, problems, and troubles of life? If there was one book that would be my go-to book, and right now there's you know, there's 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 hundreds of them, um, but if there was one, it would be this one. Instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Good. Do you want to you want to add a third one in that category? Just yeah. just since I'm lighter there, do you want to keep filling in? Oh, I could go on. I could go on for a long time. Here, here's one that's really I, I think is really good. Um, it is um, Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. Yeah. And and really, what that that book's about is connecting your work to to God's work to mm-hmm. gr- the Great Commission. I mean, I I spent many years in a secular vocation, and probably not unlike other believers. I mean, really lived, lived for my own glory, lived for my own praise, um, lived, you know, it was all about uh, the fame of my name. It was all about, you know, building my 401k. And the idea that God had placed me there for a grander purpose than to live for myself uh, was was foreign to me, and this this was really helpful in beginning to kind of connect the Great Commission to what that looked like as I went to work every day, and uh, and what God's purpose was for me there. Hmm. And uh, anyway, Tim Keller, every good endeavor. Good. All right. Um, let's. All right. We, we did your category. We're going to move to mine. Okay. <laughs> uh, essentially. History, um, and and for that, I'm going to pull a quote from C.S. Lewis's introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation. All right, you know, followed that, and this is a little bit long, but it 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 serves the point. Here's what Lewis has to say on this: There's a strange idea abroad that in every subject the ancient books should be read only by the professionals, and that the amateurs should content himself to the modern books. Thus I found as a tutor in the English literature that if an average student was to find something out about Platonism, the very last thing he thinks to do is to pull a translation of Plato off the library shelf and read the symposium. He would rather read some dreary modern book ten times as long, all about isms and influences, and only once in twelve pages telling him what Plato actually said. The error is rather an amiable one, for it springs from humility. The student is half afraid to meet one of the great philosophers face to face. He feels himself inadequate and thinks he will not understand him. But if he only knew, the great man, just because of his greatness, is much more intelligible than his modern modern commentator. Boy, is that true or what? The simplest student will be able to understand, if not all, yet very great deal of what Plato said. But hardly anyone can understand what modern books say on Platonism. It's always there, uh, always therefore been one of my main endeavors as a teacher to persuade the young that firsthand knowledge is not only worth more acquiring than secondhand knowledge, but it's usually much easier and more delightful to acquire. It is, he goes on, uh, he concludes that, it's a good rule then that after reading any new book, never to allow yourself to read another new one until you've read an old one in between. I am, I, I am convicted by this whole and have found this to be true. So when I go to the like, category of theology, and this is another reason why the Christian living thing doesn't, or the practical theology frequently I don't touch on as much, because I try not to read many books that are less than 50 to 100 years old. 
um, because too many books come out and there's just not an, I, I don't want to wade through, I don't want to roll the dice on your book. I want to know that that book is worth it. And so to do that, you read what's still being translated, what's still being published that's over a hundred years old. So, I mean, I go down the list and say, go read Augustine. Augustine's very readable. Go read the Confessions. Go read City of God. Go go pick up Aquinas and wrestle with what the scholastic Catholic theology actually looks like. He's readable, more readable than you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, shoot, Athanasius on that is very, very readable on the Incarnation. All of this stuff, I'm, I'm doing a, a class on a lot of these guys right now, all of this stuff is available online and in public domain. You can go get it for free. Um, so I, I would always suggest in terms of church history or history in general to go and read the original sources. They're probably better and more accessible than you think. Um, now, all that, and, and let me give you one modern history church history book. Uh, it's called Jesus Made in America by Stephen Nichols. And it it looks at the way that different eras of American history have thought about the person of Christ. And a really, really interesting book. Um, so he, you know, looks at the Puritans and looks at the, the holiness movements and uh, WWJD and things like that. And what, what kind of flavors did different eras in American history think about Jesus and how he was understood. It's an interesting read mm. and, and pretty accessible. I mean, it's a couple hundred pages, but still very readable. All right, I've got two more physical books here. We could go on. What else you got on your list? Oh, no. So I've got a question Yeah. with, and I, I appreciate your, your encouragement to go back and read what has stood the test of time yes. throughout church history. But you also meant it, mentioned, you know... Plato, for example. Yes. And so when you think about some of the, I'm just going to, I'm going to simplify it. When you look at some of the leading secular thinkers Uh of a particular era, how important is it to read those? Because at the end of the day, Uh it's still secular thought. You still have to work through it and say, okay, how much of this... Is is contrary to the scriptures. How much of this is contrary to truth? Yep. And because Plato had a worldview, sure. And he's he's writing from it. Not only did he have a worldview, uh, quite importantly, he shapes the world from him on. After, I mean, I don't know who it was that said it. Some philosophy professor that said all of philosophy is a footnote on Plato. Yeah, you should read Plato because he's hugely influential. Now, you and I, I we're smiling at each other across the table because Scott and I have an ongoing conversation about this, and it's probably one of more nuanced than straight-out disagreement. But um, there's there's two sides to that, I, and from I'm, there's probably more to it than that, but let's, let's at least consider two things. First, the role of common grace. What does general revelation and common grace do for Plato? What does it do for Socrates? What does it do for Immanuel Kant? What does it do for anybody else in between or after? Um, Should I read Nietzsche? And I would contend absolutely you should read Nietzsche. Um, I understand what you're saying, 
I would probably disagree with it. I haven't said anything yes, yet. Yes, you, you've asked a very <laughs> leading question, Scott. Don't you pretend like you haven't said it. So, uh, I'm the victim here. At, <laughs> yeah, right. At some level, I think there is valuable insight because of general revelation. And I'll, I'll give a very tangible example. I had a, a class at Moody on a theology of sin as portrayed by monsters in literature and found a profound understanding of sin in the pages of Oscar Wilde's A Portrait of Dorian Gray. Oscar Wilde hated Christianity, quite famously, very against it, but he had a deep, profound understanding of the consequence of sin. And I understood something about my own faith through a, a pagan author. But you still filter that through the lens of Scripture. Oh, of course you do. And there's some things you had to throw out because you go, no, that's inconsistent with what I know about the doctrine of sin. And there's certain things you go, that resonate because of what I know about the doctrine of sin. Right. And I would point to common grace or general revelation to say, yeah, there's there's some value there. There's going to be something wrong there. I'm going to say that about all these books, by the way. There's not one of them that I read that I'm not going to go... Uh, yeah, I filter that through Scripture, even someone who has a biblical worldview. But when we talk about common grace, yeah, again, there may be things, because of common grace, they get right. Yes. That's common grace. Yes. But there's also things that they get wrong. Sure, but I could, we say that, I could say that about every okay. Christian author yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, I agree. Right. But, but what I, I want to make sure that we're not communicating is that the things that they get wrong are all still part of God's common grace, right? It's when we talk about common grace, we're talking about, you know, there are things that secular people, folks that are not Christ followers, get right. But they get whatever it is that they happen to get right. And when we say get right, we mean it's in line with what scripture portrays. It is because of common grace. Yeah, that they get it right. I mean, there's it's, an old old Hebrewism that God's signature is truth. Yeah, and, and that's a pithy way of saying the same thing, right? Like, there's going to be things that people who hate God, deny faith, are going to have that that they say accurately. They're going to make mm-hmm. a. I mean, Oscar Wilde's probably a, a, a good case study. He's going to have uh, insightful comments on the human condition, and he does, and. He has a completely crazy worldview, and he—the thing that I really appreciate about his—about Dorian Gray is that he understands it, and he knows what's happening, and he's choosing to live a life full of hedonism, knowing that it's going to cost him in the end, and it does, and that's exactly what happens in Oscar Wilde's life. He dies destitute on the streets of Paris— I, there's a lot of conversation and story that goes into that, but I, I find that very, very helpful and interesting. Now, the question that you're getting at and that we've teased out a little bit is how much effort, how much, if if there's, you have to spit out a lot of bones, is it worth it to actually read it? Shouldn't you just go read somebody who agrees with your worldview? So that goes to my second point. So the first argument would be it's worth reading because there is general revelation. Not just Christians have true understand truth and can see good things. They get things wrong as well, but there's value there at some level. The second point is, I want to understand the world in which I live. And if you don't understand Plato, you can't understand the world you live in. You can't understand the culture in which you are a part of if you don't get 
how modernism arrives out of an ancient thought. It's just you're you're going to be blowing in the wind on terms. You're like just I'm just gonna stick to you at some level. You you're advocating for an intellectual. Amishness? I don't know. Is there a way? To, right? Like, 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 I completely remove myself from culture if you take that that line of thinking. We can keep going on this. I was going to say, this is another podcast. <laughs> I say, we're at 35 yeah. minutes right yeah, now yeah, because no, we you need, opened yeah. that up right at the end of this book conversation. But I, I don't know where to go on, on being able to... Uh, and I know it's almost it's beyond cliche at this point, but the in the world, not of the world element. I, I can't understand my world. I think it's the, uh, one of the mistakes that early fundamentalism makes in Christian church history. We pulled ourselves out of culture to such a level that we didn't get it. We didn't know how to talk to anybody who wasn't in our subculture because we refused to engage. I don't want to be someone who refuses to engage with someone who disagrees with Christian thought. Mm. Yeah. And to do that, I have to read it and understand it at a variety of, I mean, that could be on economic. I mean, go read Thomas Sowell's basic economics. It's a great book. Yeah. It's worth reading. Is he a Christian? No. Um, I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about Thomas Sowell. I, I should probably double check on that one. Um, but is his book worth reading or go read black rednecks and, uh, white liberals. Uh, is that the one? What's the title of that? Anyhow, it's it's a it's a that's a great book. Yeah. So I think there's a number of things here that we yeah probably, push back we, on it. Go well, ahead. No, 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 no. Briefly not with, or not. No, no. Well, if we're going to push back, we do that in a separate. Uh, we'll do in a separate podcast. But the uh, as we kind of wind this up, you'd mentioned again going back to just the comment about reading some old stuff and it stood the test of time. Do you have? Maybe uh, a good place to wrap this up would be, do you have a favorite um, theologian from, you know, old dead guy that you go, you know, if there's one person that has just really shaped me, um, it would be this person. I, I don't have a good answer to this. And I know you do, because... <laughs> Right, I, I mean, if you if you had to pick Today, one guy, yeah, I mean, it might John change. Owen would be it. John Owen's the guy. Yeah, right. he's the man. Now, twenty years from now, there may be a new one, but that's right. Yeah, he's. Yeah, I I've never uh, specialized, if you would, uh, in anyone in, in all of my historical work. It's always, uh, I mean, I I I like reading people I disagree with, so I really like. Uh, reading T.F. Torrance, um, who's more Bardian than I care for, but he makes me think deeply about my theology. He's more modern, to, I mean, turn of the century, but more more modern thinker. Um, I mean, Jonathan Edwards is always mm. convicting, worth reading. I really like Edwards. He's a pastor, too. I, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So after the the rise of the university, the guys that go just academia, there's something necessarily lost in yeah, my mind missing. when I read those guys. Yeah, missing. Um, when that is different. When I I just t taught on John Calvin last night. Calvin is uh, people think of him as a scholar. He is a pastor mm. through and through. Yeah, and we don't. That's not the caricature that we get of Calvin, but. Man, read the Institutes, and you're like, man, this guy longs for people to know and love God. Yeah. More than anything else, he wants yeah. you to know and love God, and I I will read that guy all day yeah. long. Yeah. So Good. 
I, I don't have a singular answer. There's a lot of guys that I like to read. You like Spurgeon. I do like Spurgeon. I like Spurgeon. Spurgeon is a little, I mean, he's Victorian, so he's a little wordy for me. Um, but he's one of the best at that. I mean, he, the, the imagery that Spurgeon uses is just so stinking mm-hmm. good. I love that guy can illustrate better than anybody I know. His, um, his autobiography is really good. If we're talking about books, his wife actually, he died. Yeah, we didn't even do a biography category. Yeah. I didn't even bring a single one. <clears throat> that would have been good. His autobiography is, is really, really good. And he, um, he died while he was in the process of putting it together. So his wife actually uh, actually finished it. Didn't but know that. It's fascinating. Hmm. It's it's really good. And yeah, I, I love Owen. And, oh, it takes, at least for me, I, I got to be in the right frame of mind. And it takes some reading okay. to get warmed up to read, to be able to digest Owen. But Owen's hard to read. He, it, it, but his, and there's others that have taken Owen in and put it into a modern yeah. English. But his Treaty of the Mortification of Sin besides being a classic, is is just so good. I remember reading it the first time, and I just sat in my office and wept because just how convicting yeah. it, it, it was. I mean, just his use of Scripture and his application of it. But um, anyway, we're... Uh, we're blowing past our time yeah. here. We're 10 minutes over. I don't know. what else, Do we want to try and uh, wrap this up in any way? Or I don't know. Do you have... Again, we didn't touch biography. I... I'm looking at this and I'm like, man, I didn't bring one uh, just literature. I, I love literature. It's probably my favorite thing to read. Um, I'm, I'm over here with theology, philosophy, and history and didn't even touch on anything that's literature that I think is, oh, I guess we mentioned Dorian Gray, but um, I don't know. Who knew this was going to be, uh, you, you needed multiple episodes. No, I knew. I knew. I knew that was the case. <laughs> well, let's... Uh... Why don't we wrap up this way? You get last word. What are you, uh, what is, you're probably reading more than one book at this time, but what are you, of what you're reading right now, what's your favorite book you're reading right now? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, normally that's a good question. I'm trying to finish up my, uh, I'm working on my doctorate, and so I'm reading for my dissertation. So I'm currently, I have like three different guys, their dissertations up that I'm reading through at the moment. They're a couple hundred pages each. It's not exactly riveting reading. So I, I don't have a good answer to this. For the last few years, all of my reading time has been assigned to me. I've read a lot of books on preaching. Uh, that's what my, my doctorate is in. And so um, if I had one, I actually have this one here. If I had one book on preaching, they, they all kind of say the same thing. Um, I, I really like Tim Keller's book uh, because I, I think his cultural insight is really, really sharp. Everything, the rest of the book, it's just like almost everybody else's. So you could go read, go read Broadus or go read Martin Lloyd Jones or I don't know, uh, Haddon Robinson, and they're all going to be fairly similar on their preaching books. Or uh, Brian Chapel, um, if you want that, the bigger biblical theology, Christ-centered preaching stuff. But uh, yeah, if I were to grab one, I, I like Tim Keller's book on on preaching. Good. How about you? Do you have a one? Oh, you, you were, that was, that was supposed to be the last you're word. You were supposed to be the to, last word. What now are you reading right now? Because I didn't have a good answer to that question, and then we'll wrap it up. <laughs> one book. One Pers- book. Personality and Worldview by a guy named uh, Bob Inc. And uh, he is um, a Dutch pastor and uh, theologian, and uh, he is dealing with... 
I'll just call it worldview versus world vision, but uh, huh. just kind of connecting, you know, what, what in the language we would use today is having a biblical worldview, but what the words that we, the term we use in biblical worldview, he would call, he would say everybody has a worldview, yeah. which is true, right? but very, very few have a world vision. And um, it's uh, hmm. it's fascinating. And then he connects it with, you know, just with personality and... Uh, I don't know. It's a it's a fascinating read. Not done with it, but interesting. I like it. All right. Well, thanks for sticking with us through a little bit of a meandering episode. Maybe we'll come back to some of these things or <laughs> the books that are not worth the time to read. I like that one. That that still feels very interesting. <laughs> okay. Real. No. <laughs> oh, don't do it, Luke. No, it's so quick. <laughs> so at Wheaton, they have uh, C.S. Lewis's personal library. They bought it in the Wade Center, and one of the things they love to show you is is Lewis's copy of Don Quixote, and he like notoriously notes everything. And at the very end of that, he has in very big letters, never again. So there you go. That's C.S. Lewis's version for you. Don't read Don Quixote. It's not worth the time. Thanks for sticking with us. It's been a lot of fun. 